Welcome to V'ger, please. My name is Joseph. I'm your co-host, Peter. And if you are joining us for the first time, or for some reason this show appeared in your uh, suggestions or something like that as a review of the TV show Star Trek Picard, don't worry, it is. Uh, ignore the number on the side. This is, this is episode 92, although it is episode 92 of our podcast. Um, we we are typically, Peter and I, uh, reviewers of the seminal television <laughs> program Star Trek Voyager. Um, and boy, oh boy, do we have a cornucopia of content for you to review if that interests you. Uh, but first and foremost, Peter and I are long-term Star Trek nerds who essentially grew up watching TNG, and so we were intensely interested in doing reviews of Picard, uh, so we have put aside our hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant, as we like to call it. Like you do, our, uh, when it's time to and, focus on the real Star Trek. Yes, <laughs> and have decided to pick up the mantle of Picard for the next ten or so weeks as we um, tackle old old friends, so to speak. Um, so if you are joining us for the first time, welcome. Uh, you've come at the right time. And if after a few weeks of us reviewing Picard, you're like, I think these guys are not total trash, then you can go right ahead and see if our uh, Voyager takes her to your liking. If not, well, you know, go fuck off. I don't care. You <laughs> I hate you. Uh, so uh, with that out of the way, we wanted to to cut to the chase a little bit and discuss how we've arrived at this point. Because this is not the first time Peter and I have discussed uh, Picard on this program. Obviously, it's been in production for some time. It's been of interest to both of us as huge fans of TNG. And Peter, you said something, it seems like an eternity ago, that feels very resonant. Do you remember what you said about the existence of the show? Uh, this existence of this show is CBS in case of emergency, breaking the glass and pulling the TNG lever to on. Yeah, I, I would call it a, an act of desperation to go for this. There's a lot of background that maybe we'll discuss as we discuss the episode. Maybe we'll wait till the end to get into. Uh, but the, the very short form is, is that this show exists because Discovery has not been as successful for CBS particularly CBS All Access, as they wanted it to be. And if you want to reinvigorate popular culture uh, attention towards Star Trek, then hitting the big red TNG button is your best shot. And this is what this is. This is them pulling their biggest pop culture touchstone and laying it on the table and saying, let's see what this can do. You got CBS pulling the card card. You got Sony taking Final Fantasy VII off the shelf for a remake 20 years in the making. Uh, it's it's a great time if you were in your teenage years back in the 90s. Yeah, for if you're a nerd in your mid to late 30s, 2020 is going to be lit. Joe, let me tell you about my day at work today because uh, this, and again, ironically, at the 25 year anniversary mark for Voyager. They <laughs> just completely ignore it and, and, and play the TNG card instead. But uh, the episode came out today on CBS All Access. I woke up. I know you watched it first thing in the morning before you went to the gym, but I was going to have to watch it when I got off of work right before we recorded. And it's no secret that you and I have not been very impressed by the press materials that they've put out the trailers data in particular looked really rough especially in the early ones and uh, my general standard operating procedure with stuff anymore is if i know i'm going to watch something i stay away from the promotional materials as much as i can because it's just spoilers i know i'm going to watch it you don't need to sell me and i don't want to come in and rewatch material i want to see it as it's intended so i've got this episode looming over my head all day and i am i'm terrified and the only I mean, we laugh about it, but like TNG is my fucking shit, yo. And to have this episode of Picard, which I'm like 80 percent confident is just going to fucking blow ass. I watched 
all of the short treks and the last couple ones were brutal. That Q&A session was especially terrible at how they treated Spock in number one. So, yeah, the 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 all of the short trek stuff is pretty much garbage. I think Calypso from the prior season is the only one I would genuinely say is like good science fiction. Yeah. And that could have just been a fucking, you know, out on limits episode, you know, or, or whatever. Like it, it didn't need to be trick. It, it, I agree with you. I dreaded watching this. I, I, I would put my percentage at 80 percent likelihood that this was going to just absolutely chat my asshole. The feeling completely raw. The feeling of dread throughout the day for me was like you've got an old beloved family dog and <laughs> it's the end of the line and it's butt is falling out and there's blood and keeps peeing on the carpet and you know it's in pain and you have to finally say goodbye. And after I get home from work, we're going to have to take the dog to the vet and and put her down. And that's just looming over me. And I just, I do not <laughs> want to come home and watch them take out my favorite childhood TV show and bring it behind the barn instead of, you know, shoot it in the head, just dry hump it until it falls apart. TNG was my show. I'll do it. So... I, you know, there was a there was a sense of dread in me uh, to watch this fucking thing, uh, but I've watched it. We're here and Picard season one, episode one, Remembrance. So I share, as I mentioned, I shared your dread. I watched it considerably earlier than you. I just couldn't afford to wait. And I happened to wake up early anyway to go to the gym, as you noted. And I was prepared to hate it. I had a small hope in my heart that it would pull it out and it would be awesome. I guess I was somewhat unprepared for it to be pretty good, which is kind of how I took it. Not perfect, uh, not quite great, but not terrible and better than I was expecting is my overall take. Expect the worst and hope to be, you know, proven wrong. My low expectations were uh, were surpassed. I almost, we'll I almost secretly wanted it to be a fucking dumpster fire just so I could write the whole goddamn thing off and say, this is just pure Kurtzman trash. I don't count Same. this. I reject this. Same. This is so bad it can't possibly be in in continuity and we're going to be done. And like you, and then, you know, my wife even was like, hey, I want to sit in and watch this with you. And I was like, OK, well, I hope the baby doesn't go ballistic like she did through short treks. But uh, she watched it. And I mean, she came out pretty good. And my wife, to be fair, also a super huge fan of Discovery season one. So that newer generation of not traditional Trek viewership, you know, they're getting their claws out there. And I, I see it sinking into her. So this episode and if there's one thing I think we can both say about discovery and i think we'll both say about this is they don't cut corners on the special effects and those visual effects are beautiful the opening sequence of them flying around through the galaxy and showing off like neat spaceship really fucking cool yeah if if this show had a subtitle that's fucking money <laughs> uh, they they spent it all cannot say they spared any expense and like you there was something comforting about the idea of being able to dismiss this as Kurtzman tr uh, trash. And if, if you are new to our discussions about track, be advised. I hate Alex Kurtzman. That chuckle fuck nightmare fuel of a goblin has fucked my favorite franchise directly into the dirt by his inability to to be able to form coherent scripts. Uh, this uh, this. This hack fraud has somehow managed to ruin like three movie franchises and just is awful. And I hate Discovery. I hate it with every fiber of my being. It's bad at being a TV show and it's bad at being Star Trek. And having his baleful touch anywhere on this was just absolutely to me a sign of terrible things. But I think the the Michael Chabon uh, influence won out and there's definitely some Kurtzman kind of schmutz on this thing but it pulls it out in the end uh and i think dramatic fashion and led me to be very interested to watch more i like your subtitle that you've given this picard season one episode one remembrance or as they say around the lot it takes money to make money 
<laughs> that could be our episode title. <laughs> it takes money to make money. Okay, that's it. We already did it. We're 10 minutes in. We found the title. That's a new record. The cow. Jumping back into short treks real quick. I've been very aware as I watch those at the presence of uh, Fuller's name, especially now that we've reached that season of Voyager where he starts becoming prominent. I was surprised to see his name carried through until the very last short trek, yet it is completely absent from everything on this Picard thing. Yeah, he he basically gets e, EP credit on anything having to do with Discovery uh, because he was part of the conception of the show before they ran him off because uh, he had too many good ideas. His name gets put on that stuff, but he's had nothing. He's had nothing to do with Discovery since before season one started. Let alone any short tracks. It's a contractual thing because he's got he's got creator credit on it, and that's how they pay him. So he didn't have anything to do with this. The guy that I credited before, Michael Chabon, uh, his his influence is important. I don't want to go too deep on this, but he was brought in about a third of the way through shooting as a new showrunner after the first one was essentially fired. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning author. Uh, he's a huge Trek fan, deep nerd Trek fan, and obviously a talented writer. And there was a lot of hope that the show was going to be better because he was going to be able to give it a clear creative vision. And I, I think you can accredit a lot. I, I know I can accredit a lot of what I liked about this to someone like him getting his hands on it. Because we know people like Kurtzman can't give two fucks about continuity and making shit work in like, Trek. They're fucking scared of it. And what this show does better than anything that's been produced in Star Trek for almost, what, 15 years, uh, is that it honors the storytelling of Star Trek authentically. That, I think, is probably his doing. And I'm, look- I'm looking forward to watching more of the show because of... My hope that that creative vision is actually going to be born through. But let's let's talk about the episode, Peter. Where do we start? We start in all places. The Enterprise D, 1701D. That's our galaxy class baby cakes flying through the galaxy of beautiful nebula while uh, the old song. And forgive me for not knowing it off the top of my head uh, that Picard and Data used to sing. It was kind of the giveaway at the end of Nemesis that. Maybe data was shining through in the old body of B4. But th- yeah, Blue Skies by Irving Berlin. There you go. Yeah. But things are not right. And like any good basement dwelling Star Trek fanboy, my cackles are instantly raised. And I'm like, why would data be wearing a first contact jumpsuit on the D? That's physically impossible. That did not come until first contact. And first contact was on the Enterprise E. Continuity airs. But we see Picard sitting there in like a T-shirt and jeans, and it starts tipping us off that uh, things are not going to be what they seem. Uh, I will say head uh, head nod and hat tip to the fact that they have abandoned bullshit 24th century civilian fashion ah. and have, res- <laughs> have restored uh-uh. themselves to normal people fucking clothing. Dude, that's like, my one biggest gripe in this fucking... Oh, what? I fuck. I loved it. I loved it. Like, oh, okay, now we, we're we no longer wearing uh, weirdo spandex jumpsuits no. 24-7. No, I need that stuff. Because look, man, so I'm the whole time home. I'm just driving home, sour. I got to watch this thing, ready to have my nostalgia finger banged, right? <laughs> so I'm coming up with like, well, how am I going to make hating on this thing funny? And, you know, I get this. I get this thought train and it's like. 90s budget television, you know, is inappropriate, basically, for 2020 post Game of Thrones golden age of television. Right. But it's not because you look at stuff like Orville, which is like fully invested in 90s Berman era Trek, and it still works. It's still acceptable. It feels good, and everything doesn't have to be super high budget. So I was almost like, God, I I hope there are like leotards and like velvet jumpsuits and all that stuff, or at least something that I can really laugh at and be like, this is terrible future clothing that we have had very clear continuity. Like, this is how these fucking people dress in the future. Everybody looks like they just walked off of some jazzercise video set. But no, you're right. All the fashion, sadly, has come around and everybody does look great. But what's hard to look at is this 10-4 they're sitting in. 
it's a CG recreation of 10 Ford. And for a place we've spent so much time and there's nothing wrong with the CG. Like it's, it's okay, but you know, it's not real. And there's that part of me that just really, really wanted it to be real. I've watched so many people get thrown through glass tables in this room that <laughs> I just, I wanted it so bad. I, uh, the, the, the dream sequence with data here, um, data looks terrible you know i it he looks rough and i don't know like we live in an, in a world now where you could like use cg to make dead people appear in movies Arkin i'm not dope. sure yeah and Leo looked i'm good. not sure why they couldn't cg this situation more like i no one is blaming brent snyder for being old no like that has happened. He cannot play an ageless Android anymore, just using caked on makeup and a wig. So let's sculpt this situation with some CG. Let us, let his performance guide that CG. And it's going to look way better, especially because it's just a dream sequence. It's not like you're going to have to do this a lot. And instead it just looks filthy. I will be the way that I would, would let's say his second encounter. He has with data out in the vineyard during the painting scene looked significantly better. Agreed. I don't know if that was maybe shot later. I, I get this. I have the suspicion it was. Uh, there was certainly um, enough criticism from uh, the Internet that I, I think the budget would have been justified in, in sprucing those scenes up. But there we've got data. He's wearing the first contact uh, style uniform and he's playing some poker with Picard right up there in 10 Ford. And they're bouncing back and forth. Uh, Picard remarks that he's sees that data's trying to trick him with false tells or some pretty playful banter. It feels good. I like what I see. It's hard seeing Picard look that old. It's hard seeing data look that bad. Makes me aware that all good things must come to the end and that, you know, this childhood fantasy can't just go on forever that, you know, these are real people getting old. And at the same time, it makes me treasure the fact that, even if this thing turns out to be complete fucking dog shit fire, I'm getting something. I think that uh, in particular to Patrick Stewart's performance as Picard and the fact that he appears old, I think that I think it's fair that he does. I mean, in universe, he is 85, no, 90 by the time this happens, right? He was born at the beginning of the 24th century. This is literally happening in the last year of the 24th century, 2399. And so he's older in universe than he is in real life. I feel like he played up his age a bit. Like you see him in interviews. He's much more like not old. You know, he's the man like apparently lives at the gym. He looks like 20 years younger than he actually is. I get it, though. Like this is a, a Picard in the twilight of his life. It's actually part of the motivation of why he chooses to act when we get to the end, of course. I I thought it was appropriate to where the character is. You know, I was expecting like maybe his age would be an uh, off-putting, but I think it it worked well in the story of like, yeah, he's almost 100 years old. He's even in the Federation's, you know, time period of super medicine, he's going to be fucking You know, old. he should just count himself lucky that he ended up like uh bones where it looked like he had garbage bags super glued to face for the initial shakedown. <laughs> exactly. I've I've seen TNG old people makeup and and John Luke just be happy you were not subjected to that. Um it his portrayal in these in this scene specifically, it's like he was very friendly, very warm. Him sitting there playing poker, I, I thought initially they were gonna be going into uh one of the the senior officer poker sessions, but he was very warm, very almost loving towards data. And I was like, man, was that really how their relationship was? Or is this a Picard who has lost remembering and acting differently in the moment ways he wishes he had? And, and I think by the fact it's a dream, we get the answer to that. They end up dropping themselves uh, in front of Mars Utopia Planitia, the birthplace of the Enterprise D, just in time to watch the whole fucking place blow up in the Enterprise D along with it. So important to note that in Children of Mars, the short trek, which is otherwise complete garbage and you shouldn't watch it, fucking awful. Uh, the important plot point, which is reiterated in this episode, is that uh, some decade prior, Mars is attacked by rogue synthetic life. 
which is, of course, activates my my brain and all of our discussions about AI, which we're going to fucking oh, get yeah. to. Uh, um, and it's pretty awful. Like Mars is destroyed. Uh, the new Utopia Planitia shipyards, which is the place the Deve was built, the biggest shipyard operated by the Federation, uh, has destroyed. You know, they I believe at one point it mentioned like Mars's atmosphere is on fire to this day. So a decade later, it's literally so. Burning, let's call this for what it is, uh, because it is. and that is Space Nine Eleven. It is Space Nine Eleven for the Federation. Yes, uh, and this is going to be a turning point in the mantra of Starfleet and the Federation. And we will later come to find out that because of these events, uh, Starfleet doctrine is radically altered. So, so, so big picture of what's going on in the universe, right? Uh, we jump over the J.J. Abrams Kelvin verse, and we find out that Spock had to go back in time. Uh, or Sp- Spock got knocked back in time because Romulus's son was going to go supernova. And that has continued over into mainline Trek. Yeah, they, that, that, that occurrence in mainline Trek is what led to the J.J. verse, because what essentially happens is that in his effort to contain the supernova, Ambassador uh, Spock, old Spock, gets sucked into a worm, uh, into a black hole that spits him out into uh, a parallel past version of his own universe. Like, so that, that supernova happens in the prime timeline. That's how the JJ verse actually occurs to begin with. And um, I quibble a bit with the idea that this space nine 11 should have been so impactful to the Federation. I feel like the writers may have missed a bit on accepting DS9's impact on what happened to the Federation during the Dominion War, which would have occurred just a few years prior to all of this. It's awful. Like, Beta Z is conquered. Uh, Millions of people die. Not thousands, millions. And that doesn't seem to be nearly as much a factor as this event. I kind of wish they would had have acknowledged that in some way or something like I get what they're trying to set up, but the Federation has gone through horrible shit before and the attack on Mars while terrible isn't actually as bad as some of the shit that happened during DS9. So let's jump considerably further in the episode for a couple minutes and, and I'm going to throw out some of my conspiracy theories here because uh, as always, I'm going to have to rely on you as the crutch for DS9. I have not watched DS9 yet, and really, it seems like Starfleet goes through some very heavy changes as an entity because of that Dominion War. The Mars 9-11, Space 9-11 incident, right? You have crippled the main shipyard uh, of the Starfleet production. Um, the Armada... Okay, so Romulan's going to go down. Uh, Picard leaves the Enterprise to spearhead the rescue attempts for Romulus. And the Romulan Star Empire has asked the Federation for help in getting all of its residents off of there. Uh, I forget what the exact number was, but there are 900 million people. No, no, the, the ships, the, the, the Armada. Oh, 10,000 10, warp capable ferries. And Picard's leading the logistics on ferrying all these people and getting them to safety. From what they said during this little newscast, and that's where the majority of this information come from, is a, a Picard interview. Um, when Utopia Planitia gets blown up, like the rescue fleet somehow gets blown up in the process. So I don't know if they're inferring that like that armada hasn't actually launched yet and it was just in production or what. But losing their biggest shipyard, losing all of these ships that were supposed to be dedicated to this Romulan thing on top of whatever happened in the Dominion Wars is what prompts. Oh, and also this synth uprising, you know, major malfunction of your service appliances is what kind of starts turning Starfleet uh, insular. And I think that as this show unfolds, we are going to discover probably some sort of a grand conspiracy where 9-11 was an inside job that they just needed a catalyzing event to get public support away from saving Romulus. And yeah, the Federation's gone through worse shit in the Dominion War, but this whole thing was engineered to leave the Romulans hanging. Upon reflection, I think you're right. And that makes so much sense to 
you and I's discussions through the years now of the Federation's overall moral decay. Like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Like, yes, qualitatively worse things happen to the Federation overall, but we know that the Federation is deeply corrupt, right? We we saw that in Focus and DS9. I think TNG tells a compelling story, maybe even a little bit on accident of the Federation's flaws. I, I mean, something that we bonded over early in our friendship was uh, an article about John Lupicard and his crew members were more an exception than the rule of Federation ethics. And that's kind of why they were like pigeonholed where they were because they weren't willing to bend or break the rules the same way that everybody else was. And, you know, I'm sitting here thinking on my conspiracy theory options and God, wouldn't it be fucking hot if like the little bug stem things conspiracy season one yeah turn out to be like the fucking ultimate big bads in this whole thing you're like motherfuckers we were here the whole time you thought you got us when you blew up remick but we're still here yeah so i i think we're gonna see some some pretty dirty pool going on and and really being the catalyzing factor on why starfleet kind of shit the bed on that whole thing but uh so mars blows up uh, Picard wakes up and we find that he is not on the Enterprise D bridge, but in fact, just an old dude sleeping in the house where vicious fires have killed off his entire family. And it uh, looks like he's put in some uh, restoration efforts. And uh, was it Chateau Picard? Yep. Is Chateau Picard. Back in full production. And I want to I want to talk about the post scarcity society of the Federation the mega boom in population of growth and prosperity. How how does one go about having a huge ass farm in like the densely populated world of tomorrow? Like that seems like such a fucking waste of space when you've got replicators and you don't need to farm, especially booze. How how do you, in a non-capitalistic society, how does one person have that much goddamn land still, Joe? Yeah, I mean, we never get into the ethics of owning property or having possession of property uh, in a post-capitalistic, uh, utopian, idealistic, post-scarcity universe. Uh, I do think there is precedent in throughout Trek of like people actually liking things that are grown. Sure. And it tasting different and being superior to that, which comes out of a holodeck. So like the demand for this to exist, I, I agree with. I think that it's probably one of those things where because obviously space exploration and colonization has occurred, there's more, there's almost infinite space for people to live. So I, there might not be a demand to like, oh, we got to start putting apartment blocks up in your farm, Jean-Luc. Sorry. I agree. And uh, I know you didn't get deep in Expanse, but they, they actually kind of answered that question for me because Earth gets like super duper densely populated and people are just chomping it. But when they do finally have viable ready to go planets to colonize like it almost causes a civil war because people are in such a rush to get the fuck up out and and go out there where there's like you said infinite possibilities so um you know we've talked before about what life in the federation would be like why warp travel is so important and it's it's exactly that reason there's there's always enough to go around whether it's food or land or adventure uh space has got what you're looking for we are a half hour in and we have only talked about the first scene. So in the effort of keeping our hopefully new viewers from abandoning us immediately, let us continue. Our next scene is actually an intro of a young lady that we will find out is named Dodge, uh, who is hanging out with her cool pseudo reptilian boyfriend um, in Boston, Boston, Neo Boston. Uh, Doing normal millennial shit, which is hanging out on a couch drinking wine. I introduced the scene as uh, now the characters I don't care about. <laughs> and, you know, they're hanging out and the the Dodge is celebrating uh, being accepted by the Daystrom Institute. She notably says, dude. Yes. Which was so weird to hear, but also like I kind of understand why someone would still be saying dude. I get it. I'm like, 
damn you, back in my day, kids your age were wearing silver jumpsuits playing Hoover-Doo with Wesley in the Forbidden Gardens. None of this dude and drinking milkshakes, waving my fist around. Um, Unfortunately, no, I guess fortunately, before I could really come to loathe these people, uh, the guy ends up with a knife in his chest. Yeah, like four heavies that we uh, are speaking Romulan, and we'll find out later, are Romulan, uh, show up, knife the dude, and are clearly uh, after Dodge and trying to see if she's quote-unquote activated. It's clear she is their target. They try to black bag her, and that's when she goes all Black Widow on him and suddenly knows Kung Fu and murders the dick out of all of the people that came to murder her. So, which makes her a little sad did you did you recognize those guys as romulan right off the bat i heard this the the sound and i knew it wasn't a klingon and assumed given the predominance of romulans in the plot that they were romulan i did not recognize the language directly as romulan there was an, right off an the aesthetic bat. there i think i i was like these these guys anytime there's like treachery treasonous ninjiness yeah. on this level it's it's romulan um, I wanted to roll my eyes when she beat the fuck out of everybody, but the action in this scene and later on the rooftop, pretty fucking legit, man. Like, I was like, I yeah. really want to hate this. Like this chick with her Jay Leno jaw. I, I, I want to not like her, but that was pretty dope. So, OK, uh, <laughs> that one dude got a knife in the chest. You know, I'm good with this. I'm good with this. Yeah, she she uh, the actress did a good job. I don't know if it was her or stunt person, but boy, oh, boy, somebody somebody did some good stunt work uh, in portraying this lady as a, a fucking uh, super ninja. She kind of meditates on some thought in her mind and she sees Picard's face and uh, that we cut away. Uh, that's when we finally get the credits. Uh, C minus credit sequence, in my opinion. Lower than that. Music, music, Go music ahead. was, music was forgettable. Visuals were actual spoilers. Like, just the music. It, it's not. And, I called uh, the Hallmark Channel music intro fucking trash. Yeah, Even my was, wife's like, what just, the hell was that? Because Discovery's got a pretty good one. The music for Discovery's good. Yeah, this was just kind of like, what the fuck was that? That was just forgettable. I was actively disappointed by what I heard. Um, but whatever, they they move back to uh, Chateau Picard. We get a little time with Jean-Luc and his adorable pupper, a pit bull <laughs> named Number One, which I thought was great, uh, who he speaks to in French, which, I, if I recall, is like the very fucking first time Picard speaks French. The know, Frenchman but... spoke French. Yeah. We we finally did it, guys. We got there, uh, and we we find them back at the house, and that's when we meet two supporting characters that you probably don't know who they are if you didn't read the comic book that they put out in advance of the show. Count me among those people. Uh, uh, I imagine so. They're uh, uh, Laris and Zaban. And they are among the Romulans that Picard is ultimately responsible for rescuing. They are the first and only um, Romulans I think I've ever seen who do not have your um, how, how do we describe Romulan hair? A worse version of Vulcan hair? Yeah, like page boy haircut, yeah, page like boy. your mom cut it. First time you ever yeah. see Romulan male pattern baldness. It's you know it's inclusive stuff. It's they got Irish accents and shit. Like they're very different. And their characters are introduced in the comic. They're they're actually the Romulan equivalent of Vintners, where they come from. Uh, and so them working here makes a tremendous amount of sense. And we find out that Picard is actually lined up to do a interview uh, with the Federation News Network. Uh, his very first interview ever since he left Starfleet, uh, because it is the decade anniversary of the supernova that destroyed Romulus. And it is a passion of his to educate people about the travesty of that um event picard's in a proper suit with a tie and a jacket and that jacket has a standing collar a la burke from aliens keeping the future standing collar dream alive which was really cool picard and the romulans you got to really appreciate 
how big of a deal they are in his life. Like that was the end of season one of TNG was like the Romulans have finally come out of hiding in the neutral zone with the interaction with Tomaluk. And like, there's a few real big touchstone moments where uh, it's Picard at the forefront of trying to mend this very old wound with Romulus and you know you can say what you want about Nemesis but it was an interesting place to leave off and it's an interesting place for them to start up again in this uh in this series yeah his personal history with Romulus up to and including the very last time we saw them is very appropriate like this has been a a major point in his intersection with galactic history quite frankly and his desire to help the Romulan people you know, of all people that would do so, um, feels very authentic coming from him as a moral figure. The scene that follows is by far the f- worst fucking one in the whole goddamn episode. And it, it held back my enjoyment of the episode as a whole. The interview with the stereotypical journalist figure. Um, what do you call it? it the Federation nothing felt- News Network? Was that- Federation News Network. Is that legit? Yeah. Is that what, F- what they called it? Yeah, FNN. Federation News Network. Darius on our trauma uh, support group pointed out something very interesting in um, uh, whatever the last short trek was where Mars is actually destroyed. And it's that, you know, we see Admiral Picard on the news talking like some sort of news pundit. When I when TNG was out, the world, our world was such a different place at really kind of the dawn of the 24 hour news cycle and CNN and this other stuff not to say anything about social media and to even wonder like in the Federation, which was established for us in the nineties, like what is news? What is fake news? How do people interact? What, what is the internet of the next generation and seeing like kind of the face of it here? Like, yeah, I agree. It's a hokey scene that you know exactly what's going to happen right off the jump, but just trying to conceptualize something that just, could not exist back when TNG was founded under Roddenberry is a real exercise. I don't mind there being journalists and news and a news network or news, you know, agency or something like that. What I found so cringy about this is that it's literally here is a cutout of a 20th century journalist that is kind of smarmy and shitty and does this one-on-one with this figure and purposefully like tries to do some fucking frost niction bullshit for no reason and violates all the rules. And it's just kind of a total bitch. And it's like, I, I have to believe that. Oh, and it's totally racist. Just like openly <laughs> towards Romulans. They're not real people. I, I just have to believe that at this point, craft of journalism would have evolved over 400 years you know just a little bit it's just it's so bad like every this is seems feels like such a kurtzman scene because it's so hack it's such a hack thing you know like oh we need to do uh we need to do all of this uh exposition for the viewer we have to catch them up what's going on oh we'll have them do an interview on tv on on space tv and you know we'll have the shitty interviewer be shitty to him and they'll allow him to be you know express his righteous indignation that'll what that'll be what we do as a way to catch the the viewership up on what has happened over the past 20 years it's obviously very effective as far as her being like openly racist towards romulans again if we're going to build into a conspiracy theory that uh space 911 was an inside job I do appreciate seeing that there is a large, there is a visible portion of Earth's population that would be so anti-Romulan. And I can't say how relations end in DS9 between the Federation and the Romulans, but that's one of the things about all the Star Treks is you always kind of just get the military viewpoint. It's very rare to see the civilian outlook. You, we've already kind of discussed a lot of the background of what happened, what they discuss. Uh, Picard gives a nice speech where he um, expresses why he left Starfleet, which is that he became very disgusted by their um, moral decay and that their their desire, their de- the, the decision to not help the Romulans was something they couldn't stand for. And 
this is the that decision. I don't like the scene, but I did like what it set up Picard to have done in his past and why he's in the position that he's in. The other interesting part of this conversation is her focus on synthetics. And we haven't really talked about this at all. And I think this is kind of the masterful stroke of of this and, and what's steered me away from being critical and into being accepting. Picard takes what I found to be an awkward, like super pro AI standpoint. And on one hand, you can say, well, he was like thick as thieves with data. Like, of course, he's going to be pro AI. But then you're about you basically we're like synth servants on Mars going rogue and causing space 9-11. And in that moment, I'm like, that's exactly what data was afraid of was non-sentient AI or non-sentient robot slaves, right? There was that whole measure of a man and Maddox and all that other stuff that they fought so hard to say that data is a unique life form and he cannot just be disassembled and copied and put into mass production. We just talked about all of this in um, Living Witness when we were talking about what if the doctor was a soon type android uh, in that little fantasy that they rolled out and and just how rare true AI is in the galaxy as a whole and how infrequently uh, Berman era Star Trek talked about uh, AI and robots in general uh, within us. And the moral implications yeah, they, of it. Like, yeah. And and this is, of course, right now we're, we're sort of already baiting the trap here, but this is where this entire episode turns around and suddenly uh, becomes extraordinarily interesting uh, because it decides to actually tackle those questions, uh, which you and I have discussed for almost a hundred episodes of our podcast uh, about how interesting it would be if it did. Right. Right. Mass effect. Like, and this we here we are. Of what if mass effect had its hooks in, in star Trek and the geth and all that other stuff that they represent uh, was there. And it's, it's potent. And, and again, for at the end of it, Picard to say, I think that the abandonment of the research into synthetics and AI was a grievous mistake was, shocking to hear come from him and i like <laughs> my favorite part of this interview and she's like was there any point that you lost confidence in uh lieutenant commander data and picard's like never and i'm like bro <laughs> bro do you have like brain damage from warg needles going in your fucking brain or the tchaikovsky virus from like episode two like Every other episode, Data was hijacking your shit to the point where I would say not like having an emergency kill switch on him was like criminally negligent on your behalf because you had a million kids on the ship. Like, yeah, he was your homeboy. But like, if anybody should know goddamn well that these things go haywire at the drop of a fucking not even to mention his patently patented evil twin brother lore like. I, I I did love the oh no one knows why all the synths went rogue and like Picard doesn't go well there's a lot of reasons why well, perhaps <laughs> like, the question I personally experienced many reasons why this one happened. perhaps the right question to ask is why would they work properly yeah. <laughs> <laughs> eh, you know they've got a they've got a pretty pretty large fail rate guys I don't know if you've read my logs yeah. but. It's pretty, yeah, I mean, it's pretty can, rough out there. Did I ever tell you why we had to change Enterprise to fingerprint recognition? Because uh, he just kept copying my voice like, oh, boy. One thing I wanted to say at this point, and I felt was was cool uh, about Picard and the Federation and Starfleet in general. I, I don't know if I've asked you this question before. Have you seen the TV show The Wire? The Wire, to break it down to its essence, is about the failure of institutions. And each season... A different institution is front and center, but the lesson's always the same. And that is institutions by the very nature are corrupt and each person within those institutions have to make a choice about accepting the fact that their institution is corrupt and subsuming themselves into it and being part of it or rejecting it, but suffering the consequences of the rejection, which if it's, you know, street gang could be death. If it's, you know, the police department could be being put in an undesirable assignment or fired, that sort of thing. And it, it, it 
makes so much sense to me that the Starfleet and Federation is no different than that, than any other institution, which is to say it's capable of corruption and Picard is not a person to accept corruption. He is a person that rejects it. And so he rejected uh, this. It's like, this is a perfect, perfect character note, right? Like, no, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not going to be a spectator to your, your dishonorable and criminal if, behavior. So the question's asked, you know, what what's the straw that broke your back to get you to quit Starfleet? And, you know, they're like, okay, well, uh, Starfleet's decision to withdraw from the galactic community and leave the Romulans hanging. That was the straw. And I'm like, really, that's all, all the bad shit that you've seen go down from like insurrection, you know, crazy admirals kidnapping this and and cooperating with these. Like, I mean, there's every every time Picard interacts with Starfleet Admiralty, it's usually Picard's a good guy. And one of the admirals is crazy and doing some bonkers shit and he needs to pull it on. So I think, like you said, that's that is the right straw to break his back when there is a unified front against him and everybody says, no, we do not support this. The Romulan thing, which has basically been his baby from the beginning with his first contact with Tom Luck on the neutral zone, all of his stuff during unification with uh, Spock on that, like for there to be such a cold shoulder to basically his life's work, right? An excellent time for him to yeah. finally say, you know, I've put up with a lot of bullshit wearing this uniform, but this is the point I can no longer ignore and fuck you, I'm out. Important notes that came from the Ready Room episode that came after this, which is the like discussion of like from the producers and that sort of thing, uh, is that Michael Chabon said that Picard specifically intended for his resignation to be a ploy to force the Federation to honor its commitment to rescue the Romulans. Not that he actually wanted to quit. And he was uh, basically his bluff got called and they said, sure, your resignation is accepted. Oh, snap. Um, yeah. So it could lead back to the discussion we had previously about this is what the Federation wanted. You know, they wanted to dispose of Jean-Luc Picard and his moralizing and this was an added bonus for the for them to be able to be that's rid of him at last. Three dimensional chess deep shit, man. That's good. Yeah, I agree. We'll see if that actually pays off. Where's this ready room thing at? Is that like a? It's on. It's a CBS All Access thing. Oh. <laughs> so, so it's yeah. another thing I got to click on. I got you. Yeah, we resume. Oh, uh, Dodge sees the interview on TV, and so she knows like, oh, that's Jean Luc Picard, and he lives in France, so I should go there. Presumably on the um, then, global transporter network that we found out in uh, the Harry Kim. <laughs> yes. And and we will see uh, happen. Apparently, see Picard gets around in this episode. We cut back uh, after Dodge's revelation to Chateau Picard. And he's you know chilling on his porch, quoting Shakespeare, as you do when you're Patrick Stewart uh, drinking wine, uh, which when Dodge shows up and explains like what happened to her including the ninja part and Picard is like, I have seen enough shit to not assume you're crazy and that there's a reason why all of this is happening. You seem to be telling me the truth. I am actually a good judge of character. So I, I got to read on you that you're, you're not fucking with me. Never mentioned that. Um, I know a God and that he fixed my heart once. Um, yeah, I've, I know, I know about some shit because yeah, I've I've seen some shit. Go on, yeah, let's indulge. Yeah, this is not the this is not by far the weirdest thing that's ever happened to me. I was turned so, into a child once, and I had to crawl around an elevator shaft. Oh, no, no, that was a separate <laughs> child incident. I drew no, a smiley. He was face stuck with children. In a warp core breach. Yeah. What is the most cringy thing that we've ever seen out of Picard? I would say when he's turned into a kid and he has. So he whines. Yeah. It's definitely Rascals. Rascals is the worst. That's it. That's an episode of TNG so bad. It's painful to know it exists. It's hard to turn a Rolaren episode into a dud, but by God, they found a way. The they they have a little sit down with her. You know, the the dog is chilling and likes her, which is like a clue that she's not a, a threat. And the Romulans are helping, you know, uh, heal her wound and going to give her a place to sleep. They have like a heart to heart about her sense of identity. And they, we get a like a quick look at this necklace she's wearing. 
There's like these interlocking rings. He's like, on that's it. a very rare piece of jewelry. And it's like that looks like every piece of fucking Tiffany's silver jewelry I've ever seen. Picard, like, yeah, I'm pretty sure I've seen that shit at a Ren Fair. So <laughs> speaking of jewelry, what's, miss, what's the pin? Big miss on that not being. What's oh uh, yeah yeah he's got a pin on yeah I don't know what that is, is like some sort of like Ma- always remember Romulan never forget yeah that's good that might it might be like a yellow ribbon type of thing um maybe a, a sharp eyed fan will tell us the fact that we're at fifty two minutes here and we're not quite halfway through I'm gonna go ahead and call it now that this is gonna be a two parter so I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and say this will be the end of part one. Because we're about to kind of like get into the meat of the action of the episode. And you can hear us on part two of our discussion about Picard uh, shortly after. So we'll see you then. Hey, this is Joseph from the editing room letting you know thanks for listening to V'ger Please for our first ever episode about Picard. You might have heard we've got new theme music there at the beginning. That's thanks to Ian and Sarah who went ahead and did a bad recorder cover of the inner light flute music on demand. They're awesome. Thank you guys. And if you want to hear the rest of our discussion about Picard, don't worry, you won't have to wait long. We'll have that out to you on Wednesday. And I assure you, we've got even more hot takes. Uh, between now and then, if you want to keep in touch with us or listen to other episodes, by all means, do so. You can reach us at VGerPlease at gmail.com or join us at Facebook at VGerPlease. We even have a Facebook group there where we love to talk to people who listen to the show. All right. Take care, folks. See you in a couple days.